She has been producer of a number of important plays, both new and in revival over the past two decades, including Wit, How I Learned to Drive, the play about the baby, the goat, Anna in the Tropics, The Year of Magical Thinking, August Osage County, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Mary Stewart, with the occasional musical like Curtains or Caroline or Change included for good measure. But it's clear that she's a staunch champion of drama, both on and off Broadway, and we'll hear much more about that over the course of this hour. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to introduce you to the producer, Daryl Roth. Hi, Daryl. Hi, I'm glad to be here. So, two current projects, both off-Broadway right now, Love, Loss, and What I Wore, and Vigil. Let's start with Vigil. Because I've had the chance to see that one um, while it's in previews. It's a play by a playwright, Morris Panitch, well-known in Canada, um, not a well-known name here in the U.S. How did you find Vigil and what drew you to it? Well, it's true what you say. Morris is very well-known and well-respected in Canada. Um, The play was actually sent to me by a, a colleague to read and originally... We thought we would do it out of town and then see where it was meant to come back into New York, whether it was an off-Broadway project, whether it would be ultimately in my theater, in fact, which it is. We did it at Westport, at the Westport Playhouse, and we decided that it really wanted to be in an intimate space. Uh, It's a very unusual, quirky play, has a lot of heart. It's a two-character play, and talks a great deal about loneliness and finding one's, you know, place in the world, which is a universal subject. Uh, I think, however, I was drawn to it because of the way Morris writes. It's a very interesting patter, the ri- patter, the rhythm of his words. Uh, there are blackouts and short scenes, and it just had a very unique quality for me. Um, basically, the story is about uh, a middle-aged man who has worked most of his life in a bank in a kind of middle management, uninteresting, boring job. And he receives a letter from his elder aunt, who he remembered so fondly. And the letter said she was dying and she would love to see him once again. So he leaves his job in the bank and he travels to visit the aunt. And (laughs) without really giving away this very unusual ending, I will tell you that it's, it's really a journey for him through his childhood and his young adult and his adulthood and how he has all these resentments built up and and how he tries to to figure out his life while he's sitting there mostly in monologue form speaking to his aunt who was dying in the bed there's a wonderful ending that I won't give away. It's a surprise. But you're certainly teasing people. I'm teasing people. It's, it's, <laughs> no, well, you know, should you I? No, should you I? should not. You should not give it away. I mean, it's, it's what's fascinating about it is that it really makes us think about um, life, loneliness, our responsibility towards other people, whether they're relatives or not. And it's funny. It's a dark comedy. It's quirky. Uh, it's kind of a little six feet under in tone and a little bit of a It's just a great little play. So why was I drawn to it? Well, I was drawn to it because it basically is about the human condition, which is always fascinating for me. And I guess it's just a play that resonated with me in its simplicity. It's a very simple structure. You made a comment to me when we were setting up this interview that it was a play that was a little different for you. And I wondered why you felt that. Well, that's different from other plays other you've things. produced. Usually I am interested in plays that deal with identity or that have a dysfunctional component. Um, I love challenging drama. I don't think this play is challenging in the way that I'm usually drawn. It's, it's – I would say the plays that I've done in the past, if people you know know some of the things I've done, they kind of really push emotional buttons – Um, and intellectual buttons. On some level, Vigil definitely does that. But it's pretty straightforward. It's a pretty straightforward story. Hmm. And um, I think I like that about it. It was just simply said. Morris's writing is very clear, but there's a deep undertone of emotion that isn't on the surface necessarily, but when you think about it, it's, it's fascinating. 
Uh, you said mm-hmm. that the show had been done. It was last season. It was, it was last early year last at winter Westport. at Westport. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a two-character show. One of the actors has changed. Malcolm Getz is mm-hmm. now in the male role. Um, were there things – was that a change because of availability or was that a change because there were certain things you were you were looking for to, to draw out of the play? Uh, the original actor in the role was Tim Busfield and he was simply divine. He was magical really. Um, actually, our schedules didn't mesh and we had waited uh, for a while and then we decided we were going to do an off-Broadway production which – we felt was really serving the play in the best possible way, which which is really a big issue. And, um, you know, Tim had other things on his plate, and I, I, I don't know. It just seemed to be the right thing to go to Malcolm, who had known about the play and who we had, you know, really thought about originally as well. And uh, that's how it happened. Because certainly with a two-character play in which in the first act completely – It is, as you've already acknowledged, a monologue. It is. I mean, the play changes profoundly. It's essentially redoing the play. The set may be similar, and Helen Stenborg as as the aunt is the same. But when one person has all the dialogue, Mm -hmm. you've you've done it again. Well, we thought we would rethink the set as well, which we did, and made it a little bit more claustrophobic in feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the stage, stage itself is smaller than Westport. Exactly yeah. what I was going to say. The stage itself is smaller, and we felt it's it really gave people in the audience a sense that they were uh, in this setting, stuck in this setting in a way that the character that Malcolm plays feels. I mean, he's the vigil in the title means he's waiting for this woman to die. And he thought he'd be visiting for a few weeks, which turns into a few months, which turns into a year, and then... You know, the vigil turns into uh, a whole different kind of waiting game. Hmm. One of the things I hear a lot is how difficult it is now to produce plays commercially off-Broadway. And here you have, certainly in the case of Malcolm, an actor who has some name recognition, Helen, highly respected, but not necessarily mm-hmm. Big box office. I, th- I think she wouldn't be upset if I said that. Um, and a playwright and a director not well known. Correct. How do you get people in to see a play like that? What's what's the challenge? Well, it is a big challenge, and I've always been a champion of off Broadway for many reasons. Um, I feel that we are attempting to meet the challenge, as you lay it out clearly, by Reaching out to theater goers, core theater goers are people that will be interested in taking a chance. The fact that it's in a small theater makes it a little more um, possible to get an audience. It's not as though we have to sell you know a thousand seats a night. It's a small theater. We reach out through our various email lists. We certainly you know have a lot of people blogging about this. Malcolm does have his fans. But basically, it's the core theater audience that likes a good new play and who's willing to take a chance. There are people that love off-Broadway and truly swear by it. The ticket prices are less. That's one good thing. The other thing is that it's just not a big deal. It's just more casual. You know, this theater happens to be on 15th Street. It's very in the neighborhood. People have a very good experience, I feel, off-Broadway because it's a more... It's just a more neighborhood-friendly, intimate experience. It's not such a big deal, hmm. you know. And I think people come to it in a different frame of mind. Perhaps their expectations are lower. I don't know. But in a way, that's good because then they can be pleasantly surprised, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, ticket selling now is a chore. It really is tough. There's a lot of competition. There are lots of stars uh, on the boards right now. And... You know, stars both in the play and, and you know, the playwright or, or, you know, it could be a Sondheim musical, which, in fact, I'm involved in one of them, so I'm happy about that. But I mean to say it's always hard off-Broadway to find your slice of the pie. And that's the creative challenge that we hopefully address every day. <laughs> so let's swing to your other off-Broadway project, which has, which has some which interesting has everything hooks going for it. it. Yeah. Um, Love Lost and What I Wore is is taking a page from the uh, Vagina Monologues playbook in terms of uh, of a rotating cast, first of all. Uh, in that way, yes. Also, um, well, Love Lost and What I Wore is very unique in a very different way than Vigil. 
first of all, it's based on a small volume that many women know because it's it's been around a while, written by Eileen Beckerman. And Nora Ephron and Delia Ephron have taken this little book and written a collection of stories that deal primarily with women's clothing and accessories and how that particular item might trigger memories or recollections in your life. We all have those moments where we remember what we were wearing and what was happening in our lives. Oh, I wore that dress the first time I met the man who became my husband, or oh my God, I wore that dress when I got divorced, or or this, that, or the other. But it's on the surface, Love, Loss, and What I Wore has Nora, Delia, a book that women know, and a wonderful cast. What we've decided to do with this is um, rotate the cast every month. So there are five women in the cast each month. And let me step back and say how it came to be, sure. because I think it's sort of interesting. Nora had approached me about doing this in uh, last summer, and we decided to start it off as a benefit performance for Dress for Success, which we thought was the perfect match. And we had planned to do six Mondays, and each Monday would be a different cast. That's where the rotating cast idea came from. So every Monday night in my theater on 15th Street, we did a benefit. The money went to Dress for Success. And it was an opportunity for Nora and Delia to work on the play. Or to work, we're not actually calling it a play. It's a collection of intimate stories is our tagline. And is it done... As readings? Is it like love yes. letters or something yes. where people don't have to memorize it? Correct. It's a cross between – in its in its uh, format, it's a cross between vagina monologues and love letters. Exactly. And the women bring their own personalities to the roles of the women that they are reading as. And the women play multiple roles, obviously. So our first cast, we open up with – oh, so let me say, we did these successfully and everybody was so excited. They were sold out the minute they were announced. And after them – we said to each other, why don't we try to do this off-Broadway? This is, this is something we should do. Women particularly, and I don't mean to exclude men. We've had a lot of very satisfied men in the audience, but mostly it's a, a woman's piece. So we made that happen. We were very lucky, very lucky, in that uh, Terry Byrne, who runs the uh, West Side Theater with Peter Askin, made the theater available to us. And not only does it have the perfect size and feeling for this piece. It is where Vagina Monologues played for many years. So it has that nice feeling when you walk in. And so we're there. We're in previews this week. And our first cast is Tyne Daly, Rosie O'Donnell, Katie Finneran, Samantha Bee, and Natasha Leone. And it is, the setup is that one one of the women is in the 60-ish age range, 50-ish 40, 30, 20. Hmm. So our cast will always have that range of actresses. Oh, and now and everyone can go and try to figure out who's which. It, it's <laughs> sort of clear. I mean, it's not exact, but it's the generational thing that we were going for. And it's very funny, and it's very touching, and it's just very honest. Hmm. And people sit there, and it's simple, and it's simplest sense. I mean, we're talking about, you know, simple things that just have really deep and universal meaning. Hmm. It's it's interesting listening to you talk about these two shows and and why they appeal to you. Uh, There was a profile of you in The New Yorker in about 2002 where there was a comment made that that you represent the most common theater buyer, a woman, uh, you know, Certain demographic. Of a certain demographic, a certain <laughs> age. age, certain interests, and mm-hmm. that. So so you're, you're your own focus group. <laughs> in a way. In a way I am. And, and I know that's true. I mean, I think I do uh, – I think I can sit in an audience and, you know, and feel a play in the way that I think other people do. Um, now, it may not make that a commercial success, but I think I've been – fortunate enough to do plays that do resonate with people. Well, let's let's start talking about some of the other work as well. But uh, first of all, you are not someone who um, began a career in theater at age 22, got out of college, said, I, I want to be a theater producer. This is something you began doing. I think I saw that your first credit was about 89. It was the 88-89 season, and it was Closer Than Ever by Richard Malpey and David Shire. So what what drew you to it and what made you think at that time, this is what I want to do? Well, interestingly, um, I had always loved theater and my greatest you know, memories growing up in New Jersey with my family um, 
really were coming into New York to see a Broadway show, a matinee, and that was just the highlight of life. And so I really did grow up with theater and always loved theater. I never realized that there could be a place for me in the world of, I didn't want to be an actress, you know, I I didn't know what opportunities there were. So I just was always a dedicated audience member and pretty passionate about it. I mean, I would... During my teenage years, I'd you know come into New York from New Jersey and often by myself and just go see a play. So I knew it was in my blood. I totally loved it, and life went on. You know, I went to college, I got married, I have my children, and there was a point in my life where I realized that maybe I could find a way to to become involved, and I didn't quite know how. But I met some people and went to some readings became friendly with Richard Maltby in the early years because we were both on a committee at City Center. <clears throat> Ultimately, the program we were both working on uh, was what became Encores. <laughs> and Richard said to me one day, you know, David and I have done these wonderful songs. We call them trunk songs. And we're going to do a presentation down at 88's, a wonderful cabaret, which sadly is no longer in existence. And I went down to see these songs, and they were each little stories. They were little stories about life going through doors. You know, one door would close, another would open. It was, to me, kind of a wake-up call that I could go through a door that I've been kind of trying to kick open or figure out how to work on. And I said to Richard after and David, you know, I just think these songs are so wonderful and they mean so much. Each one stands alone as a little story and I think a lot of people would relate to them, as I certainly have. And they said, okay, well, what would you want to do? And I <laughs> very boldly said, at God knows where I had the confidence, I said, I think I can produce this. I mean, I don't know who that voice was talking. And with Richard's help, we got it to Williamstown that summer and it actually happened. We've, we produced it at the Cherry Lane Theater, and it even got a recording from RCA. And to this day, people tell me that the most used audition songs that actors and actresses will use are from Closer Than Ever, because each song has such a range for an actress to show their stuff or an actor to show their stuff. So I always felt great about that. That was my initial production, and that's how I started. And um, and what was wonderful for me is that it was small enough, it was off-Broadway. I felt I could get my hands on every element and learn as I, you know, I'm kind of the Nike commercial, everyone will say, you know, I just did it. I just did it. I hardly knew what I was doing. So who were the people who gave you guidance or thoughts or or pointed you in the right direction? Because surely you, you couldn't just go into it and know every decision that had oh, to be no, made. Oh, no, no, clearly. Well... You know, we had an ad agency. We had, uh, you know, I had a general manager. <clears throat> I had, you know, the people that work on the show, certainly. But I do believe I felt then, and I must say, some 22 years later, I feel the same, that you have to trust your instincts when it comes to decisions. And you really have to go with your gut. The, the thing that is often in the way for people is confidence. I think people do need some confidence, and then it's easier to trust your instincts. Certainly, Closer Than Ever was a success and probably continues to have productions to this day. Your next two shows ultimately were not. As you talk about confidence, it's Mm -hmm. it's great when you start and you have a hit. Um, But the subsequent two shows, The Baby Dance, which was an off-Broadway play, and Nick and Nora, which was a big Broadway musical, mm-hmm. ultimately were not successful. That didn't take the wind out of your sails? No, it didn't actually. Uh, I'm a very tenacious person, and I felt it was all part of my learning curve. I will say I learned from The Baby Dance, which is a wonderful play by Jane Anderson, that the reviews mean a great deal. We had a very negative review in The New York Times Uh, To this day, I feel it's a brilliant play. And Nick and Nora, I was uh, joined, I I was a junior person, uh, you know, joining a team of producers, and it just wasn't meant to be. That there's been a lot written about Nick and Nora, and it's hardly worth going into again. It just got off track. I was not, <clears throat> excuse me, I was not in a position of leadership. I was there to learn. I was kind of part of a larger team, and... It wasn't successful uh, because it was not 
the vision wasn't shared among the creatives, I would say. Um, but nothing takes the wind out of my sails because I really do things that I love. And I can be wrong, and I have been wrong, and, and sometimes plays just don't catch the wind um, in a way that that you would hope. But I wouldn't do a project if I didn't love it. And I have no regrets about what I've done. My only regret, I would say, is, and it's not a regret, it's just, you know, part of this business. You know, I'm sorry I haven't on every production repaid my investors totally. Sometimes I like to say to people that theater deals in a different currency. Hmm. And it's not always about the money, although my husband will disagree. Well, I mean, there was a time hmm. when when investors and in shows were referred to as angels, everyone Correct. who put money in. And that has a connotation that still in some ways is true. If people are doing it because they think they're going to make money, they're probably investing in the wrong thing. They can, but it's it's no sure mm-hmm. thing. Well, it's no sure thing. And um, which is why I say to, you know, to younger people coming in or anyone who's interested, you know, to talk about my particular philosophy of producing is that you hope to be smart about the way you produce. You hope, you know, to capitalize it in the right range. You hope to have your weekly expenditures be in the right range. You try to market it, advertise carefully and frugally. But there are certain things... You know, so you're a responsible producer, but there are certain things that are out of control, that are out of one's control, and um, it's the reason you have to love what project it is you're you're doing because you have to give it your all. You know, whether it comes out of the box, you know, fast and furiously. I will say, Love Loss and What I Wore has a has a wonderful advance for an off Broadway show, and it's selling beautifully, and you know, people are excited about it, and that's great. That just is the icing on the cake. But I love it, and that's why I'm doing it. And the same, you know, I I would give that advice to anybody who's going to be producing. You've got to really be attached and committed, I think is a good word, committed to the project because there are ups and downs and things happen, and, you know, and it takes a long time to bring something to fruition. I have another play that I'm producing called The Temperamentals, which is kind of another area of of interest for me, and that is plays that deal with identity and gender, whether it's identity and gender, race, religion. Uh, this is a wonderful play about a man named Harry Hay, who was uh, the person who who formed the first organization of gay men in 1950s with his partner at the time, Rudy Gernreich, the fashion designer. And the play was given to me by the playwright, John Marins, whose play I had produced some years ago, Old Wicked Songs. And I really liked it, and it was you know, a good idea to do it in conjunction with a not-for-profit theater. Uh, and it was put up at the Barrow Group, which is who we worked with on Old Wicked Songs. And we had a wonderful run of it. And truthfully, we're going to move it again uh, in the winter, I believe, because it had to end at that point because many of the cast members had other commitments. Uh, I bring this up to say there are things, there are bumps in the road, there are little challenges, and you have to stick with the project if you love it. Uh, the point being commitment hmm. is very important. You know, I mean, it would have been nicer to just keep rolling along and building our audiences, but that wasn't meant to be. Now, I have in front of me a long list of your shows, and even in the few that we've discussed specifically, you've sort of delineated two different roles as a producer. You've, you've talked about with Closer Than Ever, you really said, I can produce this, whereas on Nick and Nora, you were part of a team and you were there to learn. Um, what were the shows that were the ones where you said, I want to do this, and took the lead early on? Well... Uh, Proof, which was put up at Manhattan Theatre Club. Um, I had worked with Mary Louise Parker uh, and Johanna Day on How I Learned to Drive uh, earlier, a Paula Vogel play, and we had, you know, forged a lovely friendship. And when Mary Louise uh, got the script and was cast in Proof, she said, she called me early on and she said, Daryl, I'm I'm in this play and I really think you're going to like it. She said, I don't know, but I'd love you to come to an early preview which I did. And at that time, I don't, you know, I have a lovely relationship with most of the not-for-profit theaters and certainly Manhattan Theater Club as well. And I just went to Barry Grove and Lynn and I said, I'd, I'd love to produce this play if it's going to move and I think it should. I would like to take 
take that step with you. So while I didn't develop the play, I was there at a very early moment. Uh, the same, a similar thing happened with Tale of the Allergist's Wife, which was another uh, play that Manhattan Theatre Club had put up. And I had worked with Charles Bush. I love Charles Bush. I've done a number of his plays. And, um, and since then, actually, since Allergist's Wife, we did Die, Mommy, Die. And I did a little movie with Charles uh, called A Very Serious Person and a documentary called The Lady in Question. So I guess things just happen organically, but um, those were two examples. Also, Three Tall Women was a, a monumental uh, chapter for me. Uh, I had gone to see it where it was presented at the Vineyard Theater, and um, uh, I went on a matinee with my husband. And at the intermission, he said to me, this is the kind of play you should be producing which surprised me, actually, that he was so moved by it and loved it so much. I mean, he has great taste. But it just kind of surprised me. Hmm. And I thought about that, and we went back for the second act, and I loved the play, and I'm a huge Edward Albee fan, and, you know, I mean, who isn't? <laughs> and at the end of it, I said to uh, my husband, I'm just curious, why, why did you say that to me? He said, because this is real theater. This is the kind of thing that I know you love, and this is how you can build your reputation. Hmm. Well, it was interesting to me. I did love it, and I, I, I knew that Liz McCann was interested in it, and I called her, and I said, um, you know, I was a young one, com- not young in age, but young in the business, and Liz is a pro and has been working a long time. I said, Liz, I'd like to do this with you if you're really going to do it. And she said, great. And that started my Edward Albee association with Liz, and we've produced all of his plays since then and certainly would continue to. And, of course, that was at the time it was just as Edward was coming out of a period where his work had fallen out of favor and the combination of Three Tall Women and Mm -hmm. the season at Signature, which was close to the same time, suddenly started resuscitating the the perception of Edward. And and now we've seen almost everything revived since that time. Well, you're right. But at that time, he hadn't been in favor, as you say. And then... We decided to move the play from the not-for-profit theater uh, into the promenade, which, again, sadly, has left us Mm. a lot of off-Broadway plays. But it won the Pulitzer Prize. And that's what really put it on a more national level. You know, it kind of elevated its presence, and that was great. Uh, The other play that I I would mention uh, in answering your question is Wit. Uh, Wit was sent to me very, very early on, and uh, Kathy Chalfont starred brilliantly in it. And it was done, it was, uh, you know, Maggie Edson, who was a first-time playwright and interestingly and sadly has not written a play since then and by her choice. And she doesn't expect to. Doesn't care to. This was something she felt she had to write and that was that. And she's just a wonderful teacher and happy as can be with her two children. But uh, Wit was something that I stepped up to the plate very early on. It was a very challenging piece. Producers were not running around trying to do it. You know, as, as many people know, it dealt with a woman uh, being diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It was brilliantly written, very moving, very challenging. And I loved it, and I said, I'll do it. And that was an early up to the plate. We did it at Manhattan Class Company to make sure we had, you know, some kind of positive review in New York. And then we moved it on to the, another off-Broadway theater, uh, the Union Square Theater. But it's worth acknowledging with Wit, first of all, it had been done, the premiere out at South Coast Rep, if yes. I remember correctly. Yes. And then uh, production, when Kathy came into it, was first at Long Wharf. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it came Which in. is where I first saw it, by the way. I went mm-hmm. to Long Wharf to see it, and I had read it. But no commercial producer wanted it. Well, the great story that I love was, and you can tell me if it's true, is, is I've been told that once the decision was made to transfer it from MCC, there was an exploration of Broadway houses, and um, the theater owners uh, said no. That's correct. Nobody wanted the play. They thought it was just too dismal, and they didn't think anybody would come. And And understandably, I mean, you know, I I get that. You have to try to look at things that will give you a commercial return. I mean, you're really looking at it with a landlord hat on, basically. But we were sad. Because we thought it really had the juice to be a Broadway play. In retrospect, it certainly could have done very well on Broadway. But we weren't going to be, you know, dissuade. We were going to produce the play. And so if we couldn't get a Broadway house, we'll do it off-Broadway. And 
it wasn't necessarily a fallback position because, in truth, it sat beautifully at that theater. And I think it ran a long time because it was a very accessible situation. And that play did so many, so many wonderful things for so many people, including myself. We started these talkbacks because it was evident that people just couldn't leave their seats when the play was over. They were stunned into this kind of consciousness of wanting to just sit there and digest it and also wanted to talk to their neighbors and other people, strangers, in the theater. It was an extremely exciting experience to witness. So we started these Talk Back Tuesdays, I called them, and people would come and people from the medical profession, people, you know, caregivers, people that were cancer survivors, families of cancer survivors, and it just turned out to have a life of its own. We ended up actually going into medical schools and doing portions of the play. Ultimately, certain medical schools now teach a course in ethics based on the characters in this play. Hmm. I mean, it's incredible. It was really quite life-changing for a number of people. Uh, so I would say I'm very proud of that and certainly had a great deal to do with steering the ship of, of that production. Hmm. Do you think, and as you say, in hindsight, it could have played on Broadway, but do you think in hindsight the fact that you weren't allowed onto Broadway may have, in fact, contributed to its longevity and its success? Might it have, have flamed out quickly it's in possible, a much larger yes. house? It's possible, yes. I yeah. also think <clears throat> you know, there weren't that many Broadway houses available to us at the time. And so, you know, if it weren't an intimate house, it wouldn't have been our choice either. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'll toss in a bit of trivia. You know, the the, uh, the Helen Hayes, which was one of the houses I know you'd looked at, um, they uh, passed over wit in favor of a show called Band in Berlin, which I know um, many people <laughs> remember fondly. So uh, you never know about these decisions. But it, it segues to something interesting, and we'll come back to some of the shows specifically. You mentioned earlier um, you are not just a producer, but you are a theater owner. And I'm wondering whether – you know, is, is owning the theater simply so that you have a space for shows you want to produce or do you wear a different hat and look for shows that you believe should have a home even if they're not yours? Mm-hmm. Uh, both I think is the right answer. When I first uh, was lucky enough to find this space, which was uh, the old Union Square Savings Bank, it was at a time um, when there was a shortage of off-Broadway theaters and, and a lot of work was being done off-Broadway. So the idea originally was to do new work, particularly work that I was excited to present, and also to be the home uh, for not-for-profit theater companies that perhaps didn't have their own home. That was my mission initially. And then what happened is I got uh, <laughs> I got a call about a very unique piece, a performance art piece, not a play, called De La Guarda, which was uh, presented by an Argentinian troupe of acrobats, performance artists, dancers, whatever. And they showed me this videotape, and I sat down and I watched it with my son Jordan, who we can talk about later because that was earlier in his career too. And I said, Jordan, I just watched this very unusual thing. I, I don't know. I mean, it's pretty exciting, but what do you think? And he said, Mom, this is fantastic. Put it in the theater and let's see how it goes. Well, the thing about it is I was about to renovate the bank and, and make it a proper theater and De La Guarda didn't want any seats. They loved that it had a high ceiling because the performers were flying on bungee cords and running around the ceiling, and it was a a crazy little thing. But I said, okay, well, we'll just work on our plans to make the theater, and we'll put this in now. We'll say, yes, come in, and we'll just see how it goes. Well, it lasted for seven years. So for seven years, there was no proper theater. It was just this fabulous, fabulous big space that everyone came to know because of De La Guarda. In the interim, I got kind of antsy about my plan of wanting to have a theater to produce new work in. And so we renovated an adjoining garage, which uh, wasn't part of the De La Guarda space. And we made it into a 99-seat theater, which we've called DR2. And that's where I've been doing the work that, you know, that I've been excited to present. And we've also offered that to not-for-profit companies and I also do my children's theater series there on the weekends. Um, so it kind of worked out in a, in a way that I almost didn't have a hand in. So after De La Guarda finished, they came and said, you know, we have another piece. It's called Ferza Bruta. And it's 
in the interim, we did a couple of plays I just there. say, I know I've seen some plays in oh, that yeah. space. In the interim, after De La Guarda left, we decided we would get flexible seating, a flexible seating program, which I did. And we can accommodate 300 seats and we put them on risers. So it was something that changed the direction of how I thought I'd renovate the theater because I realized that the advantage I have with the space is that it can be very flexible. It doesn't have to have seats. There really aren't great venues like this for the kind of unusual work that often wants to have its own, you know, physical setup. So we we decided to take that route, and we did some very good plays and some very good uh, programs. And then uh, what I call the cousin of De La Guarda, Ferza Bruta, came, and again, the seats left, and they're flying high again (laughs) with with this other. So I am a theater owner, and I do like to do work that I can feel proud of. I also lease the space to people that, you know, May make good use of the space. So it's kind of a combination. You've mentioned going out to see shows. You've mentioned scripts that have come in. What's the balance for you and how you look for work? Obviously now you're well-established. Um, certainly I assume every day scripts show up on your door. How much do you look at the stuff com- that comes in over the transom and, and how much is it you really focus in on certain playwrights or, mm-hmm. or certain artists that may be involved that uh, you'd like to work with? Uh, it's a good combination of all of the above. Um, I do like to honor people that I've worked with before in many cases. In most cases, um, I'm happy to say that playwrights that I've produced will come back to me with their next play. And if it's something that I feel you know, I can do the right job for and if I think I'm the right producer for it, I will try to do that. Uh, so there's that returning letterman concept. Um, I read a lot of plays. Uh, I'm, you know, many interesting things are submitted to me either directly through the writers or m- probably now more through their representatives and through their agents. Um, I also go out to see things in different places. I, I believe in in enhancing productions as a uh, as a person to support the not for profit theater that may be working on something. I mean, part of what I like to do is encourage new writing to happen and, and new writers' work to be produced. And many times the right place for it to be produced is in a not-for-profit theater. And then if it's meant to have a commercial run, I can then be in position to take that step with the play. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I'm always feeling good about it because, at the very least, we've helped something happen in a theater. It found its audience. It got mounted. And so that's to the good. If it doesn't end up you know, being commercial or or if it's not indicated that it should have a commercial life, that's okay. You know, that's okay. That's a chance we take. Um, so I also partner with not-for-profit theaters, and that's another way that things uh, come to me. And not-for-profits call me when they have a play that they're interested in, and they'll send it to me to read. And if it's something that's exciting for me to get involved with, and the partnership is right. And in addition... There are other commercial producers that I have worked with in the past that I respect, and you know we have a mutual respect, so they may come to me with a project that they're the lead producer on and say, would you like to join me? And in many cases, uh, th- that's a good thing to do because I like to produce you know, as much as I can, and sometimes not being the lead producer but being a part of a team is a wonderful way to be able to do something that you can be a part of and not necessarily have the entire responsibility on your shoulders. So I do a combination. You mentioned the teams, and it often comes up in discussion about sometimes how large teams get these days. Yes. Is that something that you've managed to avoid, or is that something that you're comfortable when there might be 15 names? Certainly, Mm -hmm. in the case of a Carolina change, I recall there were a lot of names above the title on a difficult show to to bring in commercially. Uh, I would answer that um, kind of in a contradictory way. It's fine. Um, My preference is not to have too many people around the table because you want to hear everyone's voice and you want to have a united vision about doing things. And and it has, you know, it has its drawbacks to be part of a huge crowd. Uh, Caroline or Change was an interesting one, though, and, and I don't put that in the same category as, oh, let's say, August Osage County, which had a lot of producers, or some other shows that have a lot of producers. 
Carolina Change was a labor of love for all of us that got involved, and we never expected it to work commercially. We just loved it, and we wanted to support Tony and Janine, and we just all gathered together, I would say, to a, to a person we were of like mind. And so... That was just a given. Yeah, I mean, that was the word at the time was people, you know, was that this was truly a case of a show where people were being angels. That that it yes, was, a, and it was it all was, producers being angels. Yeah, which is not usually what producers want to do, but we did it in the spirit of which it was, and it because, was wonderful. Because and we're the belief all proud. that it deserved a wider audience right. and deserved to be. Well, the question was, did it need <laughs> to be on Broadway? Was that part of it? Is that this work needs needs that imprimatur? I think it was meant to be on Broadway. Yes, I do. I do. And I think it had a beautiful production that George Wolfe directed. And uh, yes, I do think it, it was meant to be on Broadway. Another uh, reason, though, that producing has become so outrageously full of names above the title is because there are a lot of people now who are, in truth, angels or investors, but they would like to be billed as producers. And so they're, you know, they'll say to you, well, I'll invest in your show, but I want to have producer billing. Okay. The job of the producer is to raise the money. That's the only way it's going to come to fruition. And so many producers will say, okay, fine. And look, part of that's good because it brings more people into the industry, and I have no problem with that. The more the merrier. And raising money, especially in these times, is quite difficult. So it's fair to say that that has to be the way things are going. Where I think things can be kept under control and which would be my preference and the way I'd like to go forward is to just have a small group of people at the top. The meetings don't have to be social gatherings. You have to make decisions in a small group. You, you have to have a leader and you, you can't just, you know, be open to town hall meetings. So, you know, it, it's a yin and a yang. I mean, you, you need to bring people in and you need to finance you know, the shows. And so, you know, you do what you have to do. I want to bring up one show which you worked on, which got a lot of attention, but ultimately did not come to New York, namely Mambo Kings. And I want to mention, first mm -hmm. of all, that um, a few weeks ago on this program, Sergio Trujillo spoke about how important that show was to him. So it's an interesting sidelight that while many people want to look at that, would look at that and say, Failure. it didn't work. Um, here's an artist mm -hmm. who says this was integral to my success. That's right, and mm -hmm. I know I know he feels that way. Which you know there there's always there's always happiness and sadness. <laughs> but the decision, you know, looking at at shows you've worked on and and you've been involved with in many successes. This was a big musical coming down the line. Um, which tried out in San Francisco, and ultimately the decision had was made to say we're going to stop mm -hmm. the train. Mm -hmm. And how how did you come to that, and and ultimately why? Well, it was a very difficult decision to be sure. Uh, let me say that uh, the start of the project was really quite exciting. Um, you know, the genesis of the project based on this wonderful book by Oscar Huelos, bringing Sergio in as a creative was genius. I mean, it just, it had the makings of something wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, and I don't really like to say this, but the director who, who actually was the, you know, spearheading the project was not experienced enough in, in Broadway. And I have to say, honestly, I don't think that our ship was was heading in the right direction. Um, I'm not one to lay blame, but I do feel that it, that was our major problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very hard decision. We tried, we tried to fix what wasn't working. We worked on it tenaciously. All the creative people were, were wonderful, and everyone had their heart in it. It just felt to me, after we saw what was going on in San Francisco, that it wasn't going to be easy to make it right. It, we had tried everything. We had wonderful people come out and look at it and give suggestions. And I guess the hardest thing to do, and you know, all of these projects that people do are like babies. You give birth and um, 
something like this is an abortion hmm. and it's horrible. And it's just, I mean, I make that analogy because, you know, I always think of producing as, as producing these, these children. Every play is a child. And when something is wrong and you can't make, you know, and it's not meant to be born, it's not meant to be born. Mm. But very few people are willing to admit that in theater and things well, go forward. It's a very forward. expensive admission. Yeah. And it's a very sad admission. But something, um, you know, knowing that Sergio and other people and uh, many of the cast members have gone on to do wonderful things. Two of our stars are on television shows and others have gone on to do wonderful Broadway work. I mean, there's always something good you have to find in everything that you do. And yes, it was a very sad an unfortunate chapter that we weren't able to bring it to fruition. But I am I'm of the firm belief that it would have not worked on Broadway, and that really would have been worse, hmm. ultimately worse. So since you've used the metaphor of your children, and it's very difficult to ask a mother to <laughs> name her favorite of her children, uh-huh. are there one or two shows that you're particularly – proud of, and maybe not necessarily ones that were the greatest successes. Mm -hmm. It is hard to pull one or two out, but uh, for the reasons we spoke of wit, having such an overwhelming resonance with people, I would have to put that on the list. Um, I would say certainly Three Tall Women, because it was a a big step in my career uh, in terms of in terms of people recognizing that, you know, I would – that I am a person that wanted to do things of quality and, you know, that I wasn't a frivolous person, let's say. I mean, my <clears> – <throat> I loved how I learned to drive too. Hmm. It's really hard. Uh, I loved Anna in the Tropics, Nilo Cruz, one of my favorite playwrights. Uh, certainly proof for the reasons we spoke of. Hmm. There's not much on my list that I haven't really loved. Are there any that got away from you yes. that you wanted to do? Oh, yes. It didn't quite get away from me, but it goes back to that issue of confidence. Uh, I didn't have the confidence to raise my hand and say, I really want to join this producing team because it's brilliant. And that was Angels in America. Huh. I had been in London and I had seen it in London and I was overwhelmed. I was just beyond, beyond. And I came back and I called up Tony Kushner's agent, Joyce, uh, Joyce Cate. Yeah. And I said to her, because I had met her, and this was earlier in my career too, and I, you know, I didn't know everybody so well, but I had met her and I felt comfortable just calling to say, basically it was a compliment. I just want to tell you I've seen this show in London. It is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. And I went on and on, raving, raving, and Tony Kushner is like one of my favorite writers. And I just didn't say, can I somehow get involved in producing it? I just didn't have the confidence to say that at that point in my career. Um, And that's my biggest regret because I think that's one of the most brilliant pieces of theater ever. Hmm. So what else is in the pipeline? I mean, we know you've you've spoken about the temperamentals coming back. You've got two shows in in previews as we're speaking. Um, Are are there other things that that you've already got your eye on that you're – able to talk about. I know yeah. the, the, the announcement can be such a big deal. And we- well, I have already announced this and it's years away, so it's not, you know, it's it's a movie that I saw that I optioned called Kinky Boots, oh, a small sure. English film that I fell in love with and thought would make a wonderful musical. So uh, Harvey Firestein's working on the book and Jerry Mitchell will be directing it and we're just continuing to put together the creative team. So that's a future project for me. Um. Is that the first time you've optioned a piece of material and then assembled or? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. For theater. For theater, yeah. Yes. I've optioned uh, uh, a couple of books for film. And um, so Kinky Boots is in my future. And uh, another exciting project based based on a best-selling novel, which it's not signed, sealed, and delivered, so I can't discuss it yet, but that's looking good. And um, my children's programs continue. We have a musical called Dear Edwina by Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich. And uh, that's been great for me as I am a grandma. And I would love to, you know, have young people grow up with a wonderful sense of theater, you know, theater that I think is good and fun and 
smart and doesn't talk down to them. So that's sort of my mission for the afternoons at DR2. Um, But I continue to look for plays that, you know, kind of still have the same parameters that I've always looked for, I guess, you know. I love a strong woman in the role. Most of my plays do have that. Many of my plays do have that. Irena's Vow, which we did last year, was an, an amazing play, which sadly didn't have the long life it deserved, in my opinion. But I know everyone, I, I must say, I never got more thank you notes hmm. from audience members for a play ever. This was a, an amazing story about a Polish Catholic woman who who hid 12 Jews in the basement of the house she worked in during the Holocaust. And they, uh, the house she lived she worked in was owned by a Nazi commandant. It was an amazing story based on truth. Hmm. The Tova Felch who played uh, Irena was quite amazing. Proof, wit, you, they all have strong women. You just prompted something I, I don't think I've ever asked before. Um, you commented about you getting thank you notes. You know, we, we think <laughs> about we think about playwrights maybe, we certainly think about stars getting fan mail. As a producer, what kind of feedback do you get on your shows? Are there people who take the time to identify who you are and reach out to you? Yes. It's amazing really? to me. Yes. Huh. Now, I'm not saying that some of these notes didn't come from people I know. Certainly, uh-huh. some of the notes, sure. of course, come from people I know. But grateful, grateful audience members that I don't know have written to me and emailed me. You know the names in the program. Anybody could, one, two, three, find out where to reach a producer. But... I've been overwhelmed, often overwhelmed. The temperamentals, interestingly enough, you know, it's a gay-themed play, and I had a number of my gay friends write to me and say how important a play it was. They felt so good that it was out there in the ether, and thank you for producing it. You know, you do. You get very satisfied by those little things in life. You know, you feel you're on the right track. Because ultimately, isn't the job of a producer to put things into the world or to help facilitate things that can happen that can reach people. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? To reach an audience and to be able to put something on stage or put it together so that the actors and the playwright and the director can do their thing. But ultimately, it's the producer who is saying, yes, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's I don't think the thank you note has the wrong address on it, personally. Huh. I love being no, thanked I, for doing good things. I, I think it's fascinating because, as yeah. I say, I, I think we all think of people waiting by the stage door or maybe writing to a playwright saying, your play moved me. Well, of course, there and is that. obviously, friends are one thing, but that, yes. that people in the public do take the time. Strangers. You know. Strangers. Hmm. I had a woman approach me. I, I'm usually, you know, in the back of a theater often, many nights. And I had a woman actually ask two or three people um, who, you know, could could they get the name, could she get the name and address of the producer? And one of the people said, well, you know, she's actually here tonight if you wanted to go talk to her. And this woman actually sought me out. I was hanging around the theater when it was over and she just, I mean, it was again about Irena's vow and she had a personal connection. You know, she was a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. It's funny because in some of those circumstances, you wonder who this person is coming up and say, um, can you tell me where I could write to the producer? And you, you would say, yes, your name is Daryl Roth, and you can write to her care of this theater and well, never let on. I could. I could. But you know what? It's nice to actually have people appreciate what you do and be kind enough to verbalize it. Yeah. You know, it's nice. I mean, you certainly get all the crappy feedback. You mm-hmm. certainly get from the critics who don't like your work. You get enough of that. This is just a little bit of a balance. And when it comes from real people, ultimately, you're producing for real people, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's quite satisfying. It's quite satisfying. I keep all those notes, too. <laughs> Fascinating. You alluded to this early on, and I didn't want to make this by any means the subject of, of this interview, but um, you have started a bit of a theatrical dynasty now <laughs> with your son Jordan ascending to the leadership of Jujamson Theatres. I'm hoping in a few months, I figured once he got himself all settled, we'd we'd bring him on and talk to him. But tell me, other than obviously pride and, mm-hmm. and excitement. Did you think you were raising someone who was going to want to make this their life's work? Well, I feel the ultimate pride, certainly. Um, I'm always proud of Jordan. He's an amazing young man. And uh, 
There's very little that I'm not proud of in, in his life or in my daughter's life. So that goes without saying. The fact that he has um, ascended in the business that I have made my life uh, is doubly satisfying. And when he was younger, both of my children, I would introduce them to theater and they would come with me. And it just turned out that Jordan loves this, just as always, you know, as a young boy, he just loved it. And I remember when we did Closer Than Ever at Williamstown, it was in the summer and he came with me to Williamstown. And and it's just something that he has an affinity for. He's very smart about it. He has great instincts. And most importantly, he's passionate about it. He's passionate about it. I mean, obviously, you don't know when a child is growing up that this is, you know, that they have a chosen career. But I always knew that theater would be in his life in some way. And um, at one point during school, he was, you know, during the high school years, he was, in, you know, acting and into college, doing some acting. And um, I kind of hoped he wouldn't become an actor, but I did want him to be, you know, excited about whatever it is that he chose to do. And it just happened. I mean, Jordan went to college. He went to Princeton, and he was a philosophy major and a theater minor, which is what you can do at Princeton. And when he graduated, he was thinking of graduate school and decided he'd work for a little while, and he'd come into my office and do do his own projects, but out of my office. And then he'd take a few years and think about graduate school. And he just loved it. He was great at it. He produced The Donkey Show, which was the first thing Diane Paulus, a lovely wonderful director who's had her own ascension to, to uh, now be the head of ART. He did the donkey show. He did the Rocky Horror show. He just had a great feel for what younger audiences wanted. That was his niche, right? About five years ago, I had a lunch with Rocco Landisman, the head of Jujamson, and he said, I just, you know, I'm very impressed with your son. You know, I want to sit down and talk to him and get to know him. And the, Paul Libin, who ran Circle in the Square, was the, you know, was where Rocky Horror Show was. So Paul and Jordan already had a wonderful relationship. And uh, one thing led to another, and, and Rocco suggested to Jordan that perhaps he'd like to come in and, and be under the Jujamson banner, so to speak. Hmm. And that happened. And for the last four years, I would say Jordan has been very influential at Jujamson. Uh, he booked Spring Awakening and very influential in bringing Grey Gardens. And uh, I remember celebrating in a funny way the first, at the opening of Jersey Boys that many years ago, uh, I was there with my husband and Jordan and uh, <laughs> and Rocco and, and his wife. And we all said, because it was such a hit, I said, Jordan is your lucky star, Rocco. <laughs> hmm. And he was a lucky charm for sure. In any event, what happened, as everyone now knows, is that Rocco was tapped uh, to be the head of the NEA, a genius genius, brilliant choice, because he'll be wonderful for all of us that love the cultural arts. And Jordan actually was um, was the young man to step into his place. So that's how it all happened. So do you look forward or dread the day when you have to go to Jordan and ask for a theater and see if he'll <laughs> take your show? Well, I already have. <laughs> that's already happened. And it's such a great pleasure. And, um, yeah. you know, we have a wonderful relationship uh, happily, personally and professionally. And, um, you know, it's all good. It's sort of my dream. And I think back to the days when <laughs> when I took Jordan to see Kaja Fole. This is the story everybody now loves to tell. And, um, you know, Jordan is a, a very proud young gay man and very open. And, of course, taking him to see Kaja Fall when he was just a young kid. And we went backstage because I was just so excited. It's such a fabulous musical and blah, blah, blah. You know, and we went back to the wig room and the costume room and everyone says, uh-huh, it started then. <laughs> <laughs> well, truth be told, it just pulled it all together in the most fabulous way because Jordan's life is very um, honest. He does what he loves and, uh, you know, he lives a very, uh, a very exciting life, but he's you know, he's, he's true to himself and that, you know, that's the best. Well, as I said, we're really here to talk about you and your work today. And Well, he is I, my best production. <laughs> he and my daughter are my two best productions. But thank you for bringing so many great plays to the stage and for your commitment really to doing plays in the theater because we, we need people to retain that commitment to keep straight plays going on and off Broadway. So, Daryl, thank thanks for being with us today. 
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at the wing and follow me as well on twitter as he sherman if you're a regular listener to or viewer of wing programs we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work just visit the website and click on support atw for downstage center and the american theater wing i'm howard sherman thanks for listening and no matter where you live we hope we'll see you at the theater